Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Notice that uh, being dead in trespasses and sins, as Ephesians 2 opens, walking according to the course of this world's prince, being disobedient sons, following the lusts of the flesh. Paul is describing, this is the problem. Being children of wrath is the end point of the problem. The wrath is not the problem. Sin is the problem. Notice also that love is not juxtaposed to wrath, but is conjoined to wrath. And so God does not hate us in his wrath, but the phrase here is the children of wrath. The, like children and a father, that his wrath, is his anger, is an element of his love. And so, start up at verse 3. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so my title here is, The Wrath of God Proceeds from His Love. The resolution to the problem of being dead in your transgressions is to be made alive. The problem is being dead and the darkness this entails. The solution partly tells us what the problem is. That is, if we were to say, what is sin? Well, sin is being dead in your trespasses, walking according to the course of this world, being disobedient sons. And that's the problem that Christ came to resolve. It is not simply that God is angry with us, as this verse tells us that his anger, his wrath, is no obstacle to his love. That he loved us. It, you know, the, the two things are right there. We are children of wrath, but his wrath is subservient to his love. And so my point here, wrath is not describing a destiny or an end point. Paul does not mean that people were destined for wrath. He is talking about himself. He's talking about other Christians. He means that they were acting in a fallen way like those who deserve God's wrath. And in fact, wrath is part of the solution. For example, if God were apathetic, is it better that a father be angry with his children and discipline? Or is it better that a father just be apathetic and not care? Well, we would say apathy is not love. But anger is conjoined to love. And so if God were apathetic, there would be no solution forthcoming. And so the phrase here, children of wrath, is a Hebrew expression. There are several, you know, sons of death, sons of stripes, that occur in several places. And Paul is echoing, I think, these places. For example, in Psalms 102, these children of death, it says that they have been set free so as to constitute kingdoms of the Lord so that they would tell of the name of the Lord in Zion. And so Ephesians is echoing this kind of tradition 
that is at the end of Ephesians Paul describes a building of a kingdom by its purifying passage through the love and the wrath of God and so the sons of wrath are the very ones that will be shown mercy and who are being built together verse 22 into a dwelling of God in the spirit as Hebrews puts it wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear and then the phrase for our God is a consuming fire and so the unshakable kingdom is established in and through this purifying fire in each instance look at Ephesians 2:10 and the verse from Hebrews and even the verse from Psalms in each instance the point is to pass from walking in darkness and works of death to walk in good works this is what we were created for these works were prepared beforehand Paul concludes God is merciful he has great love for us and in Christ he addresses the problem of sin itself by undoing the orientation to death being dead in sin the orientation to the flesh the power of the prince of the air that these are the problem this is sin and Paul is focused at the beginning of this verse he's saying okay here's sin itself at its root we could say that sin is this death dealing service to the prince of the power of the air and Christ then came to rescue us he came to address the problem of sin and he did not come to address the consequences of sin of course in addressing the root problem the consequences will be taken care of such as the wrath of God or even the consequences of guilt or shame which arise as a result of sin if you look at Romans chapter 1 Paul goes through an entire list there but up at the head of the chapter he says now here is the problem of sin and then he describes all these consequences degrading passions greed unrighteousness envy murder strife deceit malice slander and it goes on up to and including murder but that's not the root problem that's the consequence of the problem and so to miss the root problem underlying these consequences is to miss why Christ came it's to miss the role of God in Romans 1 it says well God just turns them over as a result of their sin he turns them over to their passions and then these passions work themselves out in all of this deceit and malice and slander and so Christ did not come to turn away the wrath of God if he turned away God's wrath it would mean he would be turning away God's love as well for in his wrath we also find his love but rather Christ came to do away with what gives rise to wrath Christ did not come simply to resolve our guilt problem but he came to resolve the problem which gives rise to guilt you know we could just go through the whole list Christ did not come to resolve primarily that whole list or to deal with the consequences but even the degrading things people do in sin up to and including murder all the acts of passion they're not the root of the problem these consequences flow from the root problem what's the root problem turning away from God trading the truth for a lie 
shutting yourselves off from God, worshiping the creation rather than the creator. But of course, in addressing the root problem, these consequences are addressed up to and including particularly God's wrath. And so to imagine the wrath of God, and this is, I'm describing a doctrine of the atonement. Many people think this is why Jesus died, to satisfy God's wrath. God's wrath is not the primary problem. And if we think it is, we're going to miss the necessary role that Christ plays in the cure. Paul describes sin, the root cause, not the results, in Romans and elsewhere as the exchange of the truth for a lie. Maybe he's referencing the early chapters of Genesis when the serpent lied to them. You won't die, you'll be like gods. And they believed the lie and they turned from the command of God to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But the same prognosis is repeated. Whenever Paul talks about sin, even in its contemporaneous setting, he will describe it in the way he's describing it here. People have given themselves over to the archon of the world order, the prince of the power of the air. And as a result, they are godless in the cosmos. That's a very interesting, 2.12. I think it's another way of saying they exchange the creation for the creator. And as a result, then, they become, verse 3, children of wrath. And this then results, you know what, in Romans and here, they're given over to their desire. They shut off God. They're lost in the cosmos. They're lost in their own desire. And the wrath of God is unleashed, we might say, in sin's consequences in both passages. And this results in walking in darkness, being dead in trespasses and sins. And so God's wrath, or his vehemence against sin, deals specifically, I think, in that sin is itself a despoiling, a dying, a passing circumstance. In Romans 1, Paul specifies that where the wrath of God is specifically directed in verse 18 of Romans 1, it's a, directed against all the impiety and injustice of human beings. And Paul speaks of an immediate revelation of wrath. We see the wrath of God from heaven now. We see it in its unfolding consequences as you go through that passage oriented to death and deserving of death in verse 32. And so in Ephesians, walking according to the prince of the world and thus being dead in sin, that's synonymous with being children of wrath. And where love is an enduring state and God's love, you know, this is thematic in the Old Testament, God's love endures forever and his wrath is for a moment. His wrath is a passing state. Death, by definition, means unenduring. As the dross of sin is burned away by the wrath, I think inherent, working in sin in part. And so wrath is not the end of the story, but it is part of the impetus behind the rescue. For he rescued us, Colossians says, from the domain of darkness. Not from his wrath. He rescued us from walking in sin. He rescued us and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so the wrath of God is not an obstacle to his rescue. In fact, it's a means to rescue. The wrath is interwoven with being dead in sin, but it is also 
in these passages we just read immediately conjoined to the love of God. Look at verses 4 and 5. Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions. The children of wrath, they're still children and are not simply consigned to wrath as an end point. They're destined to pass through wrath to love. In other words, that's part of the love. Paul's talking about himself. That he's passed into full experience of the love of God by way of wrath. And wrath then is not descriptive of God's character, but it flows from what is his character, which is love. Apart from his love, there would be no wrath. Psalms 35, his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Psalms 106, verse 1, praise the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his love endures forever. We could quote verse after verse. He is good. Psalms 118. His loving kindness is everlasting. Isaiah, I will give thanks to the Lord for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. That just describes the human situation. If God did not love his creatures, then he could not be angry with them in the way described in Scripture. But the problem is not God's wrath. In fact, wrath is not primary. Love is primary. As George MacDonald has put it, the passage from wrath to love is not a change in God from, oh, one minute he's angry and the next minute he loves us. There's the God of wrath in the Old Testament and the God of love in the New Testament. But it's a passage through a purifying love. God is one. And God is love. He is not sometimes a God of wrath and other times a God of love. That doesn't mean that we don't teach people to fear God. By no means. For love loves unto purity, McDonald says. And it's often experienced as wrath. The love of a father sometimes results in anger as a consuming fire that will not be content until our sinful nature Everything that separates us from God is burned away. The Hebrew writer is quoting our God as a consuming fire precisely in that context of being created for a kingdom. So God's anger is at one with his love. God's mercy, we could say, God's justice are one and the same. Mercy and punishment, they're not opposed. The consuming fire is a means to an end, God's punishment, that we might be the creatures he intended us to be. Could we say that his punishment, his justice, may be his most merciful act? Isn't that true of a loving father? That the thing that he does to discipline us is precisely that thing that is his mercy? And so Paul depicts salvation at the end of this chapter, like the book of Hebrews, like the psalm, as a harmoniously functioning kingdom. Look at 2.19. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and you are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple 
in the Lord, in whom you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. It's an echoing of the Psalms. It's a parallel passage to Hebrews. The imagery is of citizenship in the kingdom, being part of God's household, being incorporated into Christ as a temple. This accounts for the entire movement from damnation to salvation. That is the disparate elements. The divided kingdom becomes a united kingdom. But the stuff that made up the division constitutes the unity. He himself is our peace. And this means that hostility, enmity, hatred, and violence in his own children is burned out. And this enduring peace among the objects of his wrath. In other words, he's saving the objects of his wrath. The very ones who were strangers and aliens, those are the same ones that are now citizens. Paul says he abolished in his flesh the enmity, which means we might speak even of his having passed through the fire of wrath, but he has turned it into purified love because his great love with which he loved us. This is the way Christ's movement is described. Even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. So the making alive due to love redirects from within the orientation to death, definitive, you know, that's what defines sin and that defines experience of God's wrath but wrath through Christ is a passage to love and this is enacted by Christ as David Hart has written the wrath of God in scripture is a metaphor suitable to our feeble understanding one which describes not the action of God toward us but what happens when the inextinguishable fervency of God's love towards us is rejected and this is the understanding of the early church. You know, Origen writes this way. If you hear of God's anger and wrath, do not think of wrath and anger as emotions experienced by God. Accommodations of the use of language like that are designed for the correction and improvement of the little child. We too put on a severe face for children. In Gregory of Nyssa, Maximus the Confessor, the wrath of God proceeds from his love so that even hell is not a divine work, but the reality we have wrought within ourselves by our perverse refusal to open ourselves to God, as God himself has eternally done, he's eternally open to us, as in the story of the prodigal son, he waits with open arms in love. And so sin is a shutting ourselves off from God. Paul describes it as being lost in the cosmos, being lost within ourselves, such that the fire of divine love cannot transform us or enliven us, but it only assails us as an external chastisement, as a hell of our own making. This is the way C.S. Lewis describes hell. He says it's a door locked from the inside. But what is sinful cannot endure the flame of God's love. In Hart's phrase, our God is a consuming fire and the pathos, the emotion of our rage against God cannot 
interrupt the apathia of his love. God's love overcomes our fallenness, our darkness. Concluding with George MacDonald, he says, There is nothing eternal but that which loves and can be loved. And love is ever climbing towards the consummation when such shall be the universe imperishable divine. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.